Good morning, you all. Sorry, I should have used the plural, all you all. All y'all. That's right. <laughs> Good. Thank you, worship team. Hey, one more time. Thank you, worship team. Great job. Great job. We got a lot to do this morning. I've only got two hours to get it done. So we're, we're talking about uh, doctrine today, which I'll, I'll get to my cool slide in a moment. Uh, but um, it's, doctrine's about what you believe and your sources for what you believe. And that, that's really what I want to kind of, I don't know, I don't want to pick at it, but I just want to peel away some ideas or, or at least some, some things that trip us up. Where do you get your ideas about God about the spiritual life, um, about how you should live your life, about what your faith should look like. Where do those ideas come from? Now, Steve and I did a series earlier, I mean, well, last year. There is no earlier this year, unless we're talking about last Sunday. But <laughs> last year we did a series called Starting Point, and we kind of addressed the issue that most people kind of patchwork their faith together. They get a, a patch of, uh, the, of this idea, and they sew it together with a patch of another idea, And to do that is to really make yourself the God of your own life, which we'll come back to in a minute. So what is your source? Now, when we talk about doctrine, Steve alluded to earlier how that's kind of a wooden word. And people hear it like, oh, no, doctrine. Oh, my gosh, it's awful. Um, Doctrine is just really what you believe and why you believe it and where did it come from. And so when you hear, so I've been in, I've been in all kinds of ter- churches. I've taught in, in a lot of different kinds of churches. Uh, man, I, I grew up, uh, what do you call what I was? Like some kind of hyper-evangelical, uh, then was a Southern Baptist, and then was a, uh, I've, I've kind of walked in the Reformed world quite a bit, and the Charismatic world, and I've been in all the streams, had my feet in all of them, loved every one of them. I mean, everything about them has something awesome. And... Um, but when you hear guys talk about doctrine, it's kind of funny. You, you go to a, a Reformed church, and when they talk about doctrine, it's like an angel settled on the room, and people go, Ooh, uh, holy brother, it's doctrine. And you go to a Baptist or evangelical Bible church, something like that, man, they're pretty excited about doctrine. They, they, they really, man, you got to have your doctrine right. And, and some of the other churches, they are less concerned about doctrine. They don't get as excited about it. But the funny thing is, all of them have doctrine. All of them think you should have their doctrine. All of them, so when they talk doctrine, they don't mean doctrine in general. They mean my doctrine. Believe what I believe. Because here's what we do with doctrine. Just... I'm going to be so honest with you, you're going to not like me, okay? Here's what we do with doctrine. We make it a straitjacket, and we make sure that everyone that we let be our friend or we share faith with fits our straitjacket. Basically, what I mean is, as human beings, we go around looking for people who are like us, think like us, believe like us. That's why there are so many denominations, because we can't be patient with each other. (laughs) Because we can't come together and realize, oh, God, God made you this way, made me that way. It's okay if we work together. There's, it's okay if we can be unified. It's not so critical that we agree. And we'll, we'll come back to that in just a minute. So I do think doctrine's important. However, 
I think the challenge that most people are facing is they're getting taught so many things from so many directions. Maybe you listen to John MacArthur or John Piper or, uh, I don't know, uh, Bill Johnson, um, Steve Furtick, Joel Olstein. I don't know who your favorite teachers are. And, and, and some of you, are, I said some of your names, and some of you were going, oh, I love them. And I said another one, you're like, oh, heretic. <laughs> <clears throat> I get it. But here, here's the thing. Doctrine, and this may be hard for some of you to swallow, so just get ready. Doctrine comes from Jesus. Amen. Jesus. Any vein of thought outside of Jesus, it has a doctrine. That's not the doctrine I'm talking about. Okay? So, there, even though I would, I would probably even argue that there is truth all over the place. You can find some truth in Buddhism. You could find some truth in Islam. You could find some truth even in agnosticism and maybe even atheism. But... If you want to know doctrine, if you want to know what's true, you have to go to the one who is truth. Jesus doesn't just say the truth. He defined himself as truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you want truth, you have to get to Jesus. He's the answer. Does that, does that make sense? And so if, if you think, when, I, when you saw the word doctrine, some of you guys who came from that you know, some of those more uh, liturgical or Reformed backgrounds are going, oh yeah, we're finally in doctrine today, we'll get some truth. I'm going to annoy you, because I'm not really going to answer those kind of questions. But, and then some of you are like, oh man, we're not, we're doctrine, I'm going to be so bored. I'm going to annoy you too, because I'm going to challenge you both, okay? Because that's my goal. Every Sunday, annoy as many people as possible. It's true, and I'm good at it, amen. I'm blessed. It's a gift from heaven. <clears throat> It's a gift from heaven. All right. So doctrine isn't about following a person. It's about following Jesus. And here's what you should know. God takes complex ideas and makes them simple. Man takes simple ideas and makes them complex. The New Testament has about 135,000 words. It sounds like a lot of words, I know. But if you've read a fictional novel, they're around 70,000, 80,000 words. Uh, John Calvin's Institutes, which are written about segments of the New Testament, that's 235,000 words. Today, I'm probably going to read, I don't know, maybe 60 words of Scripture. I'm probably going to use four or 5,000 words to describe those 60 words of Scripture. So what you need to understand is there's so much available now about Jesus. And that's what most people do. They learn about Jesus, and they don't learn from Jesus. They learn about the Bible, about scriptures. They don't actually read the scriptures. And so what I want to encourage you to do today is to, is to get your thinking and your beliefs from Jesus, which is what Paul did. So we're talking about the apostle, and the apostle Paul taught a doctrine that was for the church, or we're using the term ecclesia, which is the Greek term for church. And, and ecclesia means something more than just an assembly. It, it means something community. It means something that is transformative in nature. And so Paul shared a doctrine that was critical for the function, application, and, and practice of 
the ecclesia. He's the apostle to us to teach us what? His ideas? Actually, Paul taught Jesus' ideas. Okay? And so that's what we learn from Paul. And everything you learn doctrinally wise that's major in Christendom, most of it's rooted in the writings of Paul. Okay, so let me read a scripture to you. We're going to look at a few in Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. Let me tell you my goal, I guess, before I, I go much further. I'm giving you a bookshelf today. I'm going to give you a bookshelf of three things. And on that bookshelf, the reason I'm giving it to you is so you'll have a framework to take the things that you learn, wherever you learn them, from books, media, teachers, whatever, so you'll have a place to put them on your bookshelf and how that they fit into your faith, okay? So we'll look at those three things. Let's look at 1 Timothy 6.2. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. This isn't part of the message, but just a quick aside. Doctrine that doesn't have obedience or practice or a pragmatic part to it isn't really that useful, and that's usually what people are arguing about is high theology and not practical theology. Not always, but usually. Some people may contradict our teaching. See, they, they had contradictions back then as well. Uh, but these are wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, his source materials, Jesus. They're the teachings of Jesus. And these teachings promote a godly life. There's the silver bullet. This is one of the key indicators to find out if a teaching is true, if it's real, if it's truth, or not. And by the way, how a teaching is taught can make the teaching true or a lie. You can teach something that's entirely true in a terrible attitude, with a heart that's wrong, and you can present it as a lie. You can believe something that's true, but the way you believe it is a lie. And the silver bullet is this. Does it promote a godly life. What's a godly life? It's really simple. Godly means like God. Does it act like, think like, behave like, practice like God? This is what good teaching does. It, it magnifies, it uh, replicates the life of God. So, I'm going to, today my goal is big. I'm going to take all the teachings of Paul. We're not going to talk about them all, but, and I'm going to put them on a shelf and my goal is when you, ha you have this shelf, when we're done, everything you hear, you'll be able to see, does it fit here? And does it promote godliness? We'll talk about a few other things later. Are you ready? Probably not, but let's do it anyway, right? <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. They promote a godly life. Paul writes to Timothy. Paul says this in Romans 1.16. He says, I am not ashamed of the good news about Christ, or the gospel of Christ, as the older translations put it. It's the power of God at work saving, saving, that's a, that, it's forward, it's, it's now, it's future, it's saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it's through faith that a righteous person has life. Shelf number one, salvation by faith because of God's grace. So the only word that's going to change in all these is the first word. Salvation is the main thing you need to interpret. You need to understand. 
Everything Paul taught, all doctrine, and, and okay, I am no great theologian. I am a blue-collar theologian, and I love being what I am, so I own it well. All theology that you find, all doctrine is anchored in the one doctrine of salvation. That's the one that everything else is founded on. And when you come to Paul's teaching, he considered the issue of salvation to be the priority for everything. Farther than you realize. Of course there's the issue of salvation for the issue of our lostness. See, there's a series of problems that assault the world. The, the problem started with us through our great, great, many greats, exponentially great grandfather, Adam, who had an attitude problem, apparently. I, you know, you're like, I didn't know. Yeah, he had a problem. And what was Adam's problem? His problem is the same problem that you and I have. He didn't trust God. The funny thing about it is, he's living in Eden. It's perfect. He has just, he has incredible intelligence. It's a beautiful creation. He just named all the animals. I'm not going to rant about the fly thing again. I'm still mad about the fly. Why did he call the fly the fly of all the things that fly? Why the fly? Anyway, sorry, I'm okay. I have to rent. rent. It's, I can't turn it off. It's, it's just a dad thing, I think. Anyway, so he's living in the middle of all. And God gave him like an, a beautiful, amazing wife, Eve. I mean, he's got everything. And he's looking at all this cool stuff God gave him. He's walking in the garden with God every day. He's hanging out with God. Everything is good. And he doesn't trust God. He thinks God is holding out on him in some way. And this is where the problem started. And that's what we call doctrinally, theologically, the issue of sin. Now, this started the problem. Adam's decision to not trust God. That presented God with a whole host of problems. But I'll, I'll touch on three of them. The first problem God had was the issue of justice. You let this, you create this little dude and you park him in your garden that you made just for him. You created the whole world with him in mind. You love him. You give him a, a wife to complete him. You love them. They are one in your sight. They're amazing. You're so happy. And they trash the place. What would you do? Justice needs to be served. If people think God is mad, He's the only being in the entire universe that has the right to be mad. I mean, we've really thrown away his gifts, spit on his treasures. And so God had a wrath problem and a justice problem. And then he had a sacrifice problem. Because then the only way to make this situation right is for someone who hadn't messed up to sacrifice themselves to make it right. Problem is, Adam was created innocent in a, an innocent world, and he blew it. How do you solve the problem? There's no one alive, no one that's ever going to be alive, that can actually pay a debt like this. So God sent his only begotten son. He sent Jesus. That was God's answer to the wrath problem, the justice problem, and the sacrifice problem. Now, I don't want to belabor all the points. We just talked about the doctrine of salvation a lot a few months ago. So I'll move on a little quickly. The third problem I want to hit, justice problem, 
How do you resolve the issue of justice? How do you resolve the issue of sacrifice? God sends his son. We pretty much immediately kill him. And mankind pretty much immediately nails him on the cross. 33 and a half years is all he was here. That's a blink of an eye. Then you have the resurrection problem. Because many of you were raised in some kind of faith and you've heard about Easter and the resurrection most of your life, you, you, it's, it's typical for us to take for granted the power it took to raise Jesus from the dead. But I want you to know that it was so amazing that Paul, in his writings, many times when he addresses the power of the resurrection, there is a hesitation in it. There is a, you can tell in Paul's writing that he is blown away by what it took for God the Father to raise Jesus the Son from the dead. Three huge problems that God Address, that God had, that God addressed, and God overcame. But then there's, then the problem kicks back to us. You have the, the problem of sin that started with us, the problem of justice, the problem of sacrifice, the problem of resurrection, and now, back in our lap, we have a problem now. And the first problem we have, because of what God has done, is what I would call the problem of Repentance. You and I, who were born into this world thinking that we can't trust God and that we're, we can only trust ourselves, and therefore with that kind of thinking, you make yourself God. In your life, you make you God. That kind of thinking will not work. You cannot trust only you and correct the situation of distrust toward God. So the issue of repentance comes into play, which simply means that one simple way to approach it is just a change of mind. It's an extreme change of mind. It's almost like swapping brains, your insane brain, for a logical brain. Okay, Realizing, I can't be God. I need a God. I need God. That's the beginning of repentance. So that's, the, that's man's problem, the issue of repentance. Then you also have the issue of faith. Not only do I need to change my mind and ha- let God make God my God, I also need to believe in him. I need to trust him. All of this comes by faith. Paul said it over and over again. That idea of salvation by faith is what rocked the world of the Reformation. It started, well, it started long before him, but Luther's the one who articulated it clearly. Martin Luther realized in in Romans chapter 2 that salvation's by faith because of grace, and it blew the world apart, blew the Catholic Church apart. It changed everything. And so you and I have to learn to trust God, to not just trust God theologically, not just in our doctrinal thinking, but in our day-to-day living. Faith is practical, hence the name of the church, ordinary faith. Works on Monday as well as Sunday. That should be our tagline. (laughs) It might have been at one time, I can't remember. We've been around a while. So our third problem First problem we have was sin. Second problem is repentance. Now our problem is faith. And our last problem is discipleship. That's where we come back to this issue of salvation with the Apostle Paul. He wanted everyone to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wanted everyone to make God their God, Jesus their Lord, Holy Spirit their source. He wanted everyone to come to terms with those realities. Discipleship is about following Jesus. Now we have a day-to-day learning curve. 
Here's the problem with the doctrine of salvation as I see it. This is Michael's opinion. I have a lot of them. But this is my opinion. The challenge that the Christendom, that modern church has with salvation, we think salvation is something that happened in the past. We think salvation is a moment in our lives, whether it's past, present, or future. And that is not how Paul saw it. How do I know that? Because of the words that Paul used. In fact, the entire Greek language may have not been as uh, sensitive to the tenses of past, present, and future as the languages that we know are. But Paul uses these words. Let me, let me take you to Romans 13, 11. He says, this is all the more urgent, for you know how late it is. So we're running late. Time sensitive. Urgency. Time is running out. And wake up, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So Paul taught a a message of the good news because he wanted people to repent and walk in faith and become disciples. But he did not see salvation as a moment. He saw it as a season. And here's why I think this. He uses the word time. Your English translation uses the word time. The word time in your English translation translates a number of Greek words. But in this word, and I'm, trans- I'm going to attempt, I'm not good at Greek. It's Greek to me, but I'm going to do my best, is the word kairos. And it's a word that means seasons. For example, you would say, oh, we're running out of time. He has 15 minutes to be done. And the person next to you would go, that'll never happen. <laughs> But that's not what this means. That's not the time is running out means. What this means is that time is running out. It's like we're in the middle of winter and spring is coming. The season is running out. When Paul used the word salvation, when he used it as a noun, he often used the word soterios, which is where we get our, never mind, I'm not going to bore you with doctrine, (laughs) big doctrinal words. Um, But it's a word that's not time-sensitive, it's time-filled. And what I mean by that, it was was past, present, and future. It was all of those things, and it was filled with those, even though it was a noun. And then there's a verb he used, like words translated in your Bible, saved or being saved. It was sozo, and sozo was a perfect tense word. It carried past, present, and future. What am I trying to say to you? Salvation is the process of your lifetime. Salvation is the process of your lifetime, being saved. It's not, okay, when I was 6, 10, 13, 25, I got saved. That's, that's not what happened. What happened at that moment is you repented. You changed your mind. You decided that I'm no longer God. I need God. That's what happened. When that decision happened, when that defining moment kicked in, now you began a season of being saved. Now, God has his hands on that season. God's the one who's holding that season. He's the one that's directing that season. He is intimately and entirely involved in your life and in discipling you from that moment of, I'm not God, I need God, to that moment of, well done, my child, you did a great job. He is, this is the season. Salvation is so much more than the saving of your soul. I know we, many in this room, we have people in our family we love that are unsaved, and we want them to come to faith. And that is legitimate, that's real. But salvation is so much more than being saved from the condemnation and the wrath of God. 
It's also being saved from the now. It's being saved from my wounds. It's being saved from my sicknesses. It's being saved from my uh, mental issues, from my past, from my mistakes. It's about saving my relationships. It's even about saving my finances. Salvation touches everything. There is no part of your life that the gospel does not apply to. This is why Christians get so nuts about the doctrine of salvation. It's literally everything. It's literally the basis for every other doctrine. You remove the doctrine of salvation, the teaching of salvation, you have nothing left. You, you, you put together a theology for wealth or success or whatever it is, and it's irrelevant. It's a stack of cards because it has no foundation based on the grace of God and the faith that moves you there. Does, it, does that make sense? So your first shelf is salvation by faith because of God's grace. So much of your Christian life and what you believe is going to be connected to that idea of God saving you, having mercy on you, God's grace toward you. And by the way, God's grace toward you isn't just mercy. It isn't just you having undeserved favor. It's also empowering. I used to call it ruthless grace, but it scared people, so I backed off. <clears throat> this grace that just changes everything in your life. Doctrine of salvation. Second thing, and this shelf, you, I may, you may not be ready. I mean, you may not see how this fits, so give me a minute. So your first shelf is salvation by faith through grace. Your second shelf is relationship. Relationship by faith because of God's grace. Relationship. That may be, like, how does relationship play into to doctrine? And I, I, I would think that, too. I mean, what, what is... All this, you know, what are all these doctrines and these Christian teachings have to do with relationship? Well, Paul writes in Romans 5.10. For since our friendship, say friendship. friendship. Our friendship with God. Now before I read any more of that, do you feel like friends with God? Do you feel like you're friends with God? And yet this is how Paul is writing to us, the church, and he's telling us, since you have this friendship with God now, so friendship is relational. You have this friendship with God. It was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, which is a whole other message. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends with God. Just, I, I, even if you don't know why, just right now, just say, hey, man. Amen. It just means I agree. It's a cool word that means I agree. Or you're right. And I need to hear I'm right at least every so often. I'm right. <laughs> Friends with God. <laughs> you see, this is why I, I put this shelf up for you. There's a salvation shelf. There are things about my soul, about me needing to be saved. But then there's also this shelf about this relationship I desperately need. Did you realize, and this may be hard depending on your faith background or your lack of one, did you realize God didn't want servants? He wanted friends. That's a little heavy. 
But think about the Garden of Eden. Do you do all that for a slave? You do that for a son. That's what Luke said when he identified the line of Christ. He called Adam the son of God. He wasn't the only begotten son of God. He came from clay, mud, dirt. But he was a son of God. And so God creates this garden. And what does he do every afternoon in the garden with Adam? They walk. They spend time together. They have a relationship. This is what Jesus died on a cross to redeem. Not a religion, a relationship. Does that make sense? God wants you as a friend. He wants you to be the friend of God. Now, it's cool being a friend with the almighty God of the universe, yes? Listen, let me, talk, let me, let me let you talk to my friend. I know you're mad at me, but do you know who my friend is? I'm sorry. I'm, I'm having fun. So, there's a lot of things that Paul points at, love, joy, and all these kinds of things. But I, I want to come at that relationship and what Christ did with it. So there's a word you'll hear me use often, a phrase, and it's not mine, it's Paul's. Translated into English, and it's this phrase, in Christ. And here's where it comes from. It actually comes from John 15, and the whole chapter is definitely worth your study and your consideration and your reflection and much, 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 much thought. But I'll give you two passages out of it. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 15, 5. Yes, I'm the vine. I'm the source. You're the branches. You're not the vine. You're not the source. I'm the source. You're the branches, okay? Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Now listen. When you first begin thinking about John chapter 15, what the first question that came to my mind as I studied it many times was this. What does it mean to be in Christ? So that's kind of what we're going to tackle today because this relationship with God as a friend is dependent upon these two words, in Christ. So verse 7, Jesus says, he goes on to say, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. Now, if I read that verse and I were you, I'd be like, oh my goodness, I got to know what it means to be in Christ. This sounds really powerful for my life. Would you agree? Would that be really powerful for your life? So let's take the idea of being in Christ back to the concept of in a relationship. Because you and I are in Christ. We are not in Christ um, like we're not in Christ, uh, like just he's our source. He's not like a place we run to. He's more like a tank <laughs> we ride around in. That's what I mean by in Christ. It's a concept. By the way, pause. I'm going to make a little shameless commercial. We have a study guides on the back table and they're available on our website. And this would be a great dinner conversation. It's, it's written in paragraphs. There's even a video, if you go to the website, that kind of goes through. So every message has one of these. Uh, and so you can help kind of discuss it. So this would be a great message to talk about this idea of relationship. So in Christ is a relational concept. And we get that, actually. If we think about it, have you ever said, well, I'm in a relationship? I'm in a relationship. I'm with my wife for 35 years Almost, yeah. Wow. Time flies when you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> but what does it mean to be in a relationship? Is being in a relationship like being in a room? 
that has boundaries and has an entry and an exit? Interesting thought, yeah? Is, it, is being in a relationship like being in a state of being? A state of feeling, love, acceptance, value. Uh, is, is being in a relationship like being uh, in an endeavor together? A joint uh, outreach or mission together? What, what does it mean to be in a relationship? And, and can you be in a relationship and be apart from each other and yet still be in relationship? Now, I'm just throwing stuff out there knowing exactly what you're thinking, so just bear with me. What does it mean to be in a relationship? Is an athlete in a relationship with a coach? And, and isn't the coach's job to help the athlete be the best athlete that they can be? And isn't being in the relationship with the coach about you, you growing and about you taking the ideas and the thoughts of the coach and applying them to your sport? Isn't, isn't there a relationship that's present there? What about friendship? Jesus said, I've called you friends. When we are in a relationship, isn't there certainly the concept of actual friendship? And in friendships, when you're in that, isn't there encouragement? Isn't there support? Sometimes laughter and joy? All of these things are things that we are in. Are you in a family? You're in a family, and you don't just get kicked out of a family. I mean, it's very unusual for most families. If your family works like that, I'm sorry. Come join mine. We'll just make ours bigger. <laughs> I mean, isn't family, isn't being in a family about, don't we do things for family that no one else will do? Don't we, um, <clears throat> don't we embrace people in family? Like when you're in a family, you're in. And the last thing I think about is when you're in a citizenship. Like you're a U.S. citizen. When you travel outside the country, you have to get a passport. A few other things nowadays, but we don't want to talk about that. And, and you are protected by, to some degree, your citizenship. And I know that because of Paul. When I read Paul's story in Acts, it was his Roman citizenship that gave him access to all these places that he was able to, to share the good news about Jesus. What am I saying? All these are relationships that you're in. Different kinds of relationships. And so when I talk about being in Christ, I'm talking about a constant relationship with Jesus that works like a coach to an athlete, that works like a government to a citizen, that works like a friend to a friend, that works like a family to a sibling, that, that works like dear friends. Does, it, does that make sense? That's what it means to be in Christ. And if you find yourself in a place where you feel like I am distanced from Christ, that doesn't mean you're no longer in Christ. It just means that you're going to return to that closeness as soon as possible. I have to leave my wife regularly, and I long to return to her most days. <laughs> if you, you don't know how funny she thinks that is, because... <clears throat> You're like, oh, I can't believe he said that. And my wife's over there. I almost killed him earlier this week. <laughs> so you have a shelf of salvation. 
There are things that you learn from scriptures, from teachers, that have to do with your soul, that have to do with your debt to God, that have to do with the healing of your heart and body. You have a shelf of relationship. You are things you're taught that have to do with how you relate to others. But my concern is with how you relate to Christ, and that only two words that adequately describe that relationship is in Christ. And also, you have to understand that Christianity is a relationship. You have to get it. You have to get it. And the last thing is the one that everyone loves. And make sure that I've not jumped ahead of myself because I do that often. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes, I plead with you to give your bodies to God for all He's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind you'll find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. Don't copy the behaviors and customs of the world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. My last, my last shelf is sacrifice. And, and I know it's challenging to take all of Paul's amazing teachings and all the stuff you hear to just put them on three shelves, but at least it'll give you three lenses to think about how does this apply to the health of my soul and the condition of it? How does this apply to the health and the condition of my relationships? And then lastly, you have this very practical thing of sacrifice. Paul taught Christians, taught the ecclesia that living for Jesus was a life of laying your life down. It was about dying to self. It was about dying to things that were comfortable. It was about giving. It was about missions. It was about killing the fleshly things and you're ending the things in you that were destroying you. It was about serving others. It was about honoring others. It was about encouraging others. And so you have this, you have this shelf that looks up for salvation. And you have this this shelf that looks in, in a sense, for relationship with Christ. And then you have this shelf that looks out for serving and helping other people. So my last shelf is sacrifice by faith because of God's grace. Here's the thing about Paul's doctrine. And I'm closer to the end than you might think. Paul's doctrine is loaded with humility. It's loaded with patience. It's full of kindness. It's full of love and gentleness. Paul's doctrine is filled with real truth that made people uncomfortable. But that truth came immersed in love and compassion and patience, honor, and care. Which is crazy because this is the same dude that was standing there when Stephen was stoned and was trying to kill Christians. That's how he started out when we meet him in Acts chapter 7. And in nine. And so Paul presents a doctrine that accurately represents who God is, and when taught, it accurately produces godlikeness or godliness in God's people. This is important because of these three shells, there are a lot of folks out there preaching the gospel. But they're not embracing the ideas of sacrifice and relationship. And that throws the message out of balance. There's more to this than just going to heaven when you die. There's a lot more going on here. And there are people promoting things that are are filling people with anger and pride, disrespect of others. 
When you see those, you know that's not godly doctrine. I'm not saying they're not telling you things that are factual and true. They may be loading the truth with the lie of disrespect or hate. And so these doctrines might make religious people. They will not make godly people. And that is the crux of all doctrine. Does it make godly people? Paul said in Timothy, anyone who teaches something different than the teachings of Jesus. Hear this scripture. In fact, these texts today, grab a study guide, download it from online, grab it off Sweetwater now, wherever you want to grab it. Hang on to these scriptures because it will help you clarify a lot of teachings that you're going to receive in life. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Paul's not being a jerk. He's just telling it like it is. It's just true. The person has an un- Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. And this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Do you see now how you identify false doctrine? Before you label someone a heretic, you look at the fruit of their teachings. These people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. They've turned their backs on the truth. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. So I've talked about doctrine today. Maybe you're sitting there going, okay, well, what about, and you have a doctrine in your head, Calvinism, Arminianism. I just like to use those big words so you'll think that I know what they mean. (laughs) Tongues, healing, prosperity, tithing, the rapture, the return of Jesus, the security of the believer, women in ministry. You didn't answer any of those questions, Mike. Oh, nobody calls me Mike. No, I didn't. That's not even my job. My job isn't to tell you what to think. There are enough people in the world doing that right now. I'm not going to be one of them. My job is to say, hey, there's Jesus. Follow him. And so most people do not actually read the scriptures themselves to find out what Jesus said. Most people don't do that. Most people don't talk to God or listen to God about their questions about things that they believe. Most people seek their answers from other people, and most people are only to accept the answers that they were predisposed to believe anyway. That's the case most of the time. I'm not saying people can't help us. I'm just saying if if a person's actually going to help you, he's going to point you to Jesus Christ. So, if you're taking notes, let me give you just a last pop quiz, not a pop quiz, but a quiz you can use to anything you're taught that will help you out. First, does it glorify Jesus? Does it glorify God? Does it glorify? Does it honor others or does it disrespect them? Uh, I really want to give an illustration there, but I'm, I'm not going to for a lot of reasons because I don't know how to do it without disrespecting the person. Does it produce the good fruit that's defined in Galatians 5? Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Does it produce godly people, people who act like Jesus acted? Does it declare truth and encourage? You see, Paul taught some hard truths, and then he always gave people the encouragement to live those hard truths. Does that make sense? And lastly, does it actually fit in the new covenant, which is kind of an advanced question, 
But what I mean by that is this. There are a lot of doctrines and truths that come out of the Old Testament that Jesus Christ made obsolete by his sacrifice on the cross. They're still valid in that they instruct us and guide us and reveal who we are and who God is, but they're not necessary doctrines that fit under what Jesus Christ has done with the ecclesia. The last one I guess I should throw out is, does it promote unity in Christ or agreement with a group? Unity in Christ or agreement with a group? you want some of these notes and they aren't in the footnotes, send me a text or you can text that 22404 number, 4404 number and I'll, I'll get them to you. So we're going to conclude today with a, a bit of doctrine and that's called the Lord's Supper. So <clears throat> you see what I love about doctrine is it's typically, boy I almost dropped the iPad. What I love about doctrine is that it typically has an application or something to to do with it. And that's where the Lord's Supper comes in. So if you want to grab your cup, and how about you stand with me? Jesus told his disciples, he said, I want you to drink this cup and eat this bread in remembrance of me. I want you to remember what I've done for you. I want you to remember what this all means, that my body, this, as the Son of God, is going to be broken, my blood's going to be poured out, and it's, all, and it's for you, and it's for the Father. So he wanted them to, to do this to remember. So this is a piece of, of doctrine we're participating in. It's a belief. It's to help us remember. Not just remember. We don't remember things just for information or knowledge. We remember things to connect to them. We remember Pearl Harbor to connect with what our country went through. We remember things to connect. We remember our birthday to connect with ourselves, I guess. Or, I don't know. So, Paul writes this in his exposition on the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. I pass on to you what I received from the Lord himself. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. We do this not just to remember what Jesus has done, but to remember what he's going to do. So let's do that together. Worship team, as we worship, let's remember, let's invite the presence of the Father. Let's connect what we've learned today with the things that we believe. Let's worship. <clears throat>